0: Welcome to Live at America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tenea Tauber, director of Town Hall Programs. This time of the year, back in 1787, the framers were debating early drafts of the Constitution and wrestling with foundational questions about the new American republic, many of which surrounded the status of enslaved peoples. In this town hall, historian Sean Wilentz reconsiders the Founders' debates over slavery in the Constitution, arguing that the original Constitution actually limited slavery's legitimacy. He discusses his book, No Property in Man, with NCC President Jeff Rosen. Here's Jeff.
1: I am so honored to have a dear friend of the Constitution Center, uh, America's preeminent public historian, and someone who's done more to illuminate the connection between politics and constitutional history than anyone else in America, uh, the great Sean Mullence. Sean, uh, who has been frequently to the Constitution Center and is a central member of our advisory group of scholars, has written a path-breaking book. I, I didn't realize until reading it how dramatically no property in man slavery and anti-slavery at the nation's founding, will transform our understanding of what may be the central question in American constitutional history. uh, Namely, was the nation founded on a pro-slavery constitution or an anti-slavery constitution or some uh, subtle combination of the two? And Sean's thesis, namely that James Madison, when he called the idea that there could be property in men, uh, an idea that had to be excluded from the Constitution, allowing the document to tolerate but not endorse slavery and to preserve it in the local areas which maintained it, but setting the stage for its eventual abolition, this sophisticated, nuanced, but centrally powerful insight, I think, will indeed transform the way we think about the Constitution. So please join me in welcoming, uh, I'll give his distinguished uh, title, the George Henry Davis, 1886 professor of American history at Princeton University, America's preeminent, uh, I'll say constitutional historian, the great Sean
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Extraordinary introduction. Thank well, you it's an much.
1: extraordinary book, and this idea—I mean, it's like uh, an amazing aha moment. You're reading the uh, Madison's notes, and you find this sentence, uh, excluding from the Constitution the idea that there could be property in men. Tell us how you came about this sentence, uh, and how it transformed your understanding of the debate between the pro and slavery Constitution, and why
2: you wrote the book. Yeah. Well, the, the sentence people have known about. In fact. I was writing a book, uh, in the course of writing a book 15 years ago about democratization during this period. I ran across that sentence in Madison's notes, and I kind of assimilated it to what remains to this day, the orthodoxy. And I thought he was not really, but he was saying something different from what the orthodoxy holds. The orthodoxy holds that basically that, that, that um, slavery was excluded. The reason that the word slavery never appears in the Constitution, as it doesn't, until the amendment that abolished slavery, the 13th Amendment no mention of slavery by the Framers, was an act of um, evasion, a kind of a subterfuge. They wanted to keep the word slavery out of the Constitution because, you know, people would object to it. Foreigners would think that Americans are being hypocritical, um, but that was the reason. It was, a, it was a, an act of kind of damage control, if you will, um, and, and that was the, the reason I viewed it as well. Um, but Madison was saying something different. Madison was talking not just about the word slavery, but the thing, the idea of it itself. And the phone has stopped ringing. Okay. That was Madison checking in. Um, <laughs> um, and, and so it bothered me at the time, all those years back, but I, I, you know, I had a lot else to do. So I didn't think about it that much. More recently, or three years ago, I was asked to give some lectures up at Harvard. And they had to be on African American history, and I was thinking about this question again. And historians of the Civil War and emancipation had been focusing on the property issue. So it was on my mind, and I thought, well, I'm going to go back and figure out what the heck Madison was saying. And so I went through the notes again with an eye to seeing what they said about property and what they said about property in man, property in slaves in particular. And that was the eye opener, because no one I mean, Madison's notes, which are the fundamental document for understanding the convention in 1787. James Madison, was a delegate, was taking notes throughout. They were published in 1840. And since 1840, they have been the heart of constitutional scholarship about the convention. In all of those years, all of those decades, it's more than a century, no one had gone through those notes with that particular idea in mind. It was just dumb luck. Um, But so that the sentence that you read took on a whole new meaning when read alongside all of the other debates in which the question of property and man came up. And there were many of them, several of them where it came up. And once you put them all together, the the convention looked different. And it, it became clear to me that the reason the word slavery is not in the Constitution is not an act of evasion at all. It was precisely to try to limit the legitimacy of slavery. That they did not—the framers, the majority of the convention—did not want to allow slavery to exist in national law. That was why the word "slavery" was not in the Constitution. They were excluding the thing as well as the word. And um, once I saw that, well, then I had a nice new argument to make about the the, the convention. Maybe worth an article. I hope we stretch it be into a few lectures. But then I looked at this question again for the whole period from the Constitutional Convention all the way through to the Civil War and everything began to look different. It was like, in my mind, it was like tumblers falling into place because then if you look at all of the major crises surrounding slavery, political crises, which in America are always ultimately constitutional crises, from this, the, the, a Quaker petition in 1790 that, uh, or more than one petition, Benjamin Franklin delivered one. All the way through the Missouri crisis, the gag rule, the, the, the controversy of the Wilmot Proviso, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, all, Tawny, above all, Dred Scott decision, they all involved this issue. That was always the issue. Does the federal government have the power to restrict slavery? Is property in man ratified in the Constitution? That's what Dred Scott was about, as you know. Um, Tawney said, yes, it is. He kind of made it up, but he he insisted that it was. And therefore, that the Republican Party of Abraham Lincoln was unconstitutional. But it all went back to this debate, these debates in 1787. And the fact that, now, you know, James Madison and his, you know, fellow delegates were not, could not see into, they were not clairvoyant. You know, they didn't sit back and say, well, 70 years from now, Abraham Lincoln's going to come along and this is all going to be taken care of. They had no idea of any of that. I mean, the country was very different. Slavery was very different. The Constitution was different. Um, But what they did do was to make sure that slavery would not be instantiated in the Constitution. There there would be room left open for Congress to limit slavery's expansion. from the, 17, uh, from the 1780s all the way through to, to the 1850s, that was always thought of as the first step towards getting rid of slavery, was to, was to limit it, limit its expansion, limit its growth. And they wanted to keep, give Congress that much power to do that. Um, and that changed everything. So you hear, ladies and gentlemen, we have to understand
1: each step in this argument. If s- slavery, pro- property and enslaved people, is a natural right protected by the Constitution, then Congress has no power to limit it in the future. But Sean says that by deliberately excluding the claim that property and enslaved people was protected, the convention allowed politics and Congress in the future to restrict or allow slavery as the political moment demanded. Exactly. So take, we need to go through each stage of this argument so we all understand it together. Tell us what the competing positions at the convention were about the constitutional status of slavery and how it was that Madison elided them by excluding from the Constitution the idea that there could be right. property in slaves.
2: Well, the chance that the Constitution was actually to recognize slavery as something other than a local institution was probably not in the cards in the, at, at the convention. But it kept coming up. They couldn't avoid the issue. And um, there, were, there were places where, unless the Constitution Thus, the framers were being very, very careful. They were going to almost by accident admit the idea that property in man could be part of the Constitution. Um, there were three basic compromises: the Three-Fifths Clause. You all, you all, you know, remember the Three-Fifths Clause?
1: Everyone is. But let's run through it so we all review our uh, constitutional history.
2: That, for the purposes of representation in the House of Representatives, as well as in the Electoral College, as it turned out, s- slaves would be counted as three-fifths of a person. That was to say they were going to be expand, give the southern state, slaveholding states a bonus in representation in the House and in the Electoral College. Um, and that was done to give the, the slaveholding states parity in, 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 in politics, give them some extra an extra weight.
1: Without allowing them to completely dominate because enslaved people weren't counted.
2: Uh, Absolutely. Point. Absolutely. Not, the, the, many of the slaveholders wanted slaves to be counted one to one because it would have given the the slave-holding states even more representation. But there was an argument about that. um, And the key to the the Three-Fifths Clause portion of all of this was precisely the way that they worded it. They borrowed the wording from a congressional resolution that actually didn't get passed from 1784. I I think think that's right. And um, also, by by 1787, if you wanted to talk about slavery without honoring it, without without, um, ratifying it, you did not refer to slaves as slaves. You did not refer to slaves as property. You referred to slaves as persons held to service or labor. Now, this is all gets very technically lawyery, but think about that for a second. Persons held to service or labor. That would include indentured servants. That would include apprentices. That would include a lot of people who were not owned as chattel. So you were recognizing slaves under a category in which property did not enter in chattel property did not enter in. And when the three-fifths clause was written, that was the way that the slaves were described. There wasn't three-fifths of slaves' will, it would be three-fifths of all persons held to service or labor, or, or words to that effect. So the three-fifths clause, which came up early in the debate, um, from, you know, it goes from May to September, very early on these questions of representation come up, that was a, a deflection of the question of property in man. But there are three other places where it comes up. Two well-known, one not so well-known. One was on the question of the Atlantic slave trade. Under the Commerce Clause, the, government, the federal government should have been able to regulate the, 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 the Atlantic slave trade. The South would allow that to happen. The, the slaveholding states, and when I say that, I don't mean the state of Virginia. The lower southern states were intent on keeping the slave trade within the hands of the states themselves, as it had been up to this point.
1: And Virginia is different because they think they're enough already and they want a monopoly on the existing.
2: Well, they also have the humanitarian thing. I think that's been, that's been um, I mean, Virginians like George Mason have been against the slave trade long before the economic thing kicked in. So I, the South Carolinians would always accuse the, the, the Virginians of being, you know, rather cynically saying that it all had to do with making money rather than humanitarianism. I think the Virginians were more... Um, idealistic than that but but the point is are you going to allow the federal government to have any kind of power over the Atlantic slave trade because in those days most people assumed that getting rid of the slave trade was the first step towards eliminating slavery Um, this is the end of the 18th century we're not at the cotton boom yet we're not in the slavery of the 19th century For a lot of people, that was the first step towards getting rid of slavery, and the anti-slavery delegates wanted to make sure that the federal government would have the power to regulate and indeed abolish the Atlantic slave trade. And in fact, they get that. Now, the southern delegates are really good politicians, and they manage to salvage a lot. Even though they lose that point, they manage to get an extension. There's a stay of execution for the slave trade until 1808.
1: And that's in the Constitution, which says that Congress may not abolish the slave trade until 1808, Correct. they so Correct. Um, But in
2: this, Correct. But in, in, in debating this whole question, the wording was important. And um, there was a point at which it became clear that the wording, as, as it was um, being discussed, would have implied that slaves were property. And that's where, in fact, Madison's you know, famous sentence comes up. They changed the wording around precisely to avoid that implication. There is then a debate, this is the lesser known one over something that lawyers know very well, uh, as the privilege, privileges and immunity clause, whether one state's laws will be respected by another state. And um, at one point, the slaveholders are worried, right? Uh, there are all these new northern states, that, or, or rather, they're old northern states, but they've just been starting to emancipate their slaves. And they're worried, particularly the state of Pennsylvania, the first gradual emancipation law in world history, passed by Pennsylvania in 1780. They're worried that these northern states are going to become refuges for, the, for, the runaway, for runaway slaves. So, um, um, uh, And they want to make sure that slaveholders who take their slaves into other states will be able to do so without having their slaves taken away from them. Charles Coatsworth Pinckney uh, who is kind of the, you know, the, the, the great, uh, what should we say, he's, he's either Mephistopheles or he's either Lucifer or he's uh, you know, a saint, depending on how you look on the slavery issue. But he's a, he's a, he's a great Southern politician. He, he proposes that property and man actually be introduced to the, in, into the Constitution at that point, according to Madison's notes, and he's overwhelmingly defeated. I mean, I think it's 10 states to one, I think South Carolina. As I say, it's always, nothing personal, but it's always now South South Carolina. I mean, it's always South Carolina. Um, They vote for it, but it's crushed. And then the third, the last, is the fugitive slave clause, which comes up later for the same reasons as I just mentioned, fear of slaves running away, um, and, and in part influenced by the Northwest Ordinance, which Congress had just passed. I don't want to get too detailed about all of this, but the Southerners want to have something in the Constitution which will compel the newly emancipated states, the newly free states, not to free slaves who run away to those states. In other words, if I'm a slave in Maryland and I run away to Pennsylvania, they wanted to make sure that there'd be some sort of guarantee that my slave from Maryland would not be freed by Pennsylvania law. So that was what the Fugitive Slave Clause was all about. But again, the the wording was crucial. Were these people who were the runaways slaves, therefore property? Or were they persons held to service or labor? And they are described as persons held to service or labor. And it's, it's fascinating. The, the Constitution went through many different phases. And I should add, at one point it looked as if none of this was going to happen, or rather none of the concessions to the um, um, the, the, the South would have won everything. The first draft of the Constitution, which is announced by a thing called the Committee of Detail, is, you know, on all of these issues is very pro-slavery. But the Northerners fight back and win. And they continue to push. And there's another committee called the, the, um, the Committee of Style, which at the end revises all the wording of everything to try to con- make sure that it conformed to what the intentions of the framers were. And they make sure that the Fugitive Slave Clause does not say anything about slaves as property. This is all, this is the, the inside baseball nitty-gritty part of all of this. The point is, at various stages at various moments in the con- in, in the constitutional debates the issue of whether slaves should be considered slave uh, should be considered property came up and in every instance the convention majority rejected it and they rejected it precisely because they did not want to see slavery ratified or honored or authorized or condoned in national law
1: and this is an extraordinary uh achievement because of the pervasiveness of slavery at the fi- founding. How many states completely excluded slavery? Just two? Than-
2: yeah, only two had abolished slavery at this point. I mean, sla- anti-slavery was a very new thing in the world in 1787. Um, for millennia, people had assumed that sl- the rights to own slaves was a natural right. And it's only in the beginning of the, the middle of the 18th century, um, in part for religious reasons, in part coming out of the Enlightenment, that lots and lots of non-slaves uh, begin to say, well, wait a minute, no, slavery is immoral, it is sinful, it is, it is a, a violation of natural rights. But that's all very new. You know, Adam Smith, 1776, Montesquieu, 70, it's very, very new. Seven, in 1780, well, back up. The very first, this, is, this surprises people when I tell them, the very first anti-slavery organization in the history of the world was formed in Philadelphia five days before Lexington and Concord. You should all applaud Philadelphia. And the president was? Well, the president became later on, Benjamin Franklin. Um, but it's new, 1775, that's new. Um, and, and so, the push for, for emancipation has already begun in the north. And this has a great deal to do with what happens at the convention. Pennsylvania passes the first gradual emancipation law in 1780. In Massachusetts, by 1783, basically slavery has been abolished through judicial decisions. There have been slaves who, slaves themselves, have been f- suing for their freedom, and the courts decide that the Constitution of, the, of Massachusetts has abolished slavery. New Hampshire, pretty much the same thing right at the same time. Then there are um, 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 Gradual emancipation laws passed in Rhode Island and in Connecticut in 1784. And then the state-to-be of Vermont, which is kind of rebelling against New York to find its, found its own statehood, adopts a constitution in 1777, actually, earlier, that also um, kept... It was the first constitution ever written that actually barred slavery. So there is this emancipation movement going on. And this is new, and it's just in the years before 1787, just before the constitution. Southerners are noticing that, and the whole point of the Constitution was to create a stronger central government, and the Southerners want a stronger central government for commercial reasons, for military reasons, for all sorts of reasons, but they're also aware that if you have a stronger central government, it might be a central government which, if run by Northerners, would undertake the same kind of emancipation that has just started in the North. They were very concerned about that, and that's why they were fighting so hard. Um, in Philadelphia at the convention for all of those provisions we're talking about. It's not just out of the blue, they're not just abstractly worried about emancipation, it's a very real political threat because what what has been happening in the North over the previous seven years. And that's important for understanding not just um, the particular clauses I talked about, obviously fugitive slave clause, obviously privileges and immunities, but it's important understanding the entire mindset of the Southern delegates in 1787 and it's important in understanding the mindset of the northern delegates in 1787. Um, they were not, I mean, there were several members of the PAS, the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. Franklin was one. Jared Inglesoll was another. George Clymer from Pennsylvania, another delegate. He had been, I think, the, maybe one of the first officers of the Pennsylvania um, Abolition Society. From New York, Alexander Hamilton had been part of the New York um, Manumission Society. There were lots of anti-slavery. And from New Jersey, there were others who were very anti-slavery. There were a lot of anti-slavery delegates. And they were important.
1: Nevertheless, these gradual emancipation efforts ran up against two radical natural rights arguments that seemed to ignore the convention's compromise. On the one hand, you write uh, pro-slavery defenders continued to insist that depriving slave owners of their property rights in enslaved violated their natural rights of property. Right. And on the other hand, the abolitionists insist that depriving enslaved people of their liberty violated their natural rights of freedom. And you had the odd convergence of John Calhoun, the notorious <laughs> defender of slavery, and William Lloyd Garrison, the notorious abolitionist, insisting that the Constitution was a pro-slavery document because of the natural rights of the slave
2: owners. Yes.
1: So so tell us about how, despite this extraordinarily moderate and legalistic compromise, you call Mm -hmm. it the paradox of a Constitution that strengthened and protected slavery, yet refused to validate it, we nevertheless, soon after the convention, had these radical positions uh, uh, arising.
2: Well, in, in the northern states, it's important to remember, whenever slavery is contested, there were racist reason, reasons given by the, 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 the slaveholders, there were biblical reasons given by the slaveholders, but the, the, the bottom line was always about property. I mean, the, the property argument was the cornerstone of the defense of slavery, as it had been in the northern states. The northern states did not respect that, overthrew it. That was, what was so radical about northern emancipation. The southern states insisted on it. In the state of Virginia, for example, in 1785, there's an emancipation, Debate, property wins. Property is the cornerstone of understanding what slavery was about. Now, it takes a while before we get to Calhoun and and Garrison. Um, slavery goes through great changes. The cotton plantation re- regime is born, but the issue of property in slaves is always there. Is always going to be there. Um, now. The, the key turning point in the story that of, of, of Garrison and, and Calhoun is actually the Missouri crisis. And remember what the Missouri crisis was all about, was whether Missouri was going to be admitted to the union. This is in 1819, 1820, going to be admitted to the union as a slave state or as a free state. And there's an enormous fight in Congress about this. And it's a measure of how strong anti-slavery opinion has grown in the north, but it's during those debates that Southerners at the national level for the first time really begin to insist that in fact the framers did recognize property in man. How could they do that? It didn't. The Southerners had more or less said it didn't. Why, why the change? How could that have happened? Well, for one thing, Madison's notes weren't published yet. <laughs> I mean, no one knew. And people were always writing to Madison, what did you all think? And Madison being Madison would, you know, kind of equivocate and say all kinds of things. But nobody, there was no reliable record for what the Constitutional Convention had done. That's number one. Number two, uh, very crafty lawyers, judges, began to interpret the Fugitive Slave Clause in a particular way, saying that implied in the Fugitive Slave Clause was the idea that slaves were property. So there was some precedent for what was going on during the Missouri crisis among the slaveholders. But the slaveholders begin to come up with that argument. If you remember your history, Congress repudiates that argument in the Missouri crisis. Why? Because half of the Missouri Compromise is banning slavery in the territories north of the parallel 3630, giving Congress the ability to ban slavery in the territories. If slaves are property, then Congress can't do that. So the Missouri crisis was once a victory for the South and a repudiation of this this argument they were making. But once the argument's out of the bag, it doesn't go away. And Calhoun picks up on it, and as Western expansion in particular becomes a bigger issue, that and DC uh, um, um, status of slavery in the District of Columbia, the Southerners begin to climb, be, climb onto this bandwagon of saying, yes, slavery is, uh, slaves are property according to the Constitution. And therefore, therefore, the federal government can do nothing to interfere with slavery anywhere, even on, in places where it has jurisdiction, as in the territories and in the District of Columbia. And that's going to be the fight eventually that causes the Civil War. You know, I mean, by the time you get to the 1860 uh, election, um, you've had the Republicans, the Republican Party of Abraham Lincoln, saying very clearly, we have the power, Congress has the power, to restrict the expansion of slavery. And the Calhounites, Calhoun is already out of the scene, but Jefferson Davis and his people are saying, not only that, that, that the federal government does not have that power, but that the only power the federal government has over slavery is to protect it. And so these are two, this is a, these seems like fine, constitutional fine points. This was the cause of the Civil War. This is Lincoln's position about over which the southern states seceded. And when the southern states seceded, they formed a government of their own, the Confederate States of America. And they have a constitution of their own. If you go back and look at the Confederate Constitution, it's almost word for word the U.S. Constitution except on all of those things about slaves as property. They make it explicit, slaves are property. And Southerners are saying, we finally did it. So one of Sean's
1: extraordinary contribution to our understanding of American history is his uh, teaching us that all of the great political battles uh, in American history have been constitutional battles. So we're approaching the Civil War and we have three positions on slavery uh, uh, Lincoln says that Congress does have the power to ban it. Uh, Stephen Douglas says that it's up to each of the territories to decide or not to ban on their own. And then there are the abolitionists who say that it's already on c- uh, c- uh, d- c- a violation of natural law. And then fourth, I suppose the uh, Calhounites say that uh, attempts to ban it violate the natural rights of slaveholders. And in the Dred Scott decision, Chief Justice Taney endorses the minority Calhoun position, which has been repudiated by uh, both of the sitting houses of Congress, and says that uh, the Missouri Compromise, half of which has already been repealed, violates the natural rights of Slave owners. Correct. Say say it more clearly than I just did, because we we all have to really understand why it is that Dred Scott is considered the most infamous constitutional decision of its time, only the second time in American history that the Supreme Court has struck down a federal law. The first time was Marbury versus Madison. So what was Dred Scott? Why was Taney's holding so controversial, and what were its implications?
2: Right. I mean, at the heart of the Dred Scott decision was a ruling about precisely the question of slaves as property. And um, Tony says many things in that decision, but the heart of it is precisely the Dred Scott. Not only doesn't have standing to sue, but the Dred Scott is property, and as property, no law can undo that status. Now, Tony says quite directly what Calhoun and others have been saying all along, but you know. Tony is the chief justice of the Supreme Court. He's not a senator from South Carolina. He is there to decide what the Constitution says and does not says, and he says that the Constitution recognizes property in man. Now, what that does is many things. First of all, it declares the Republican Party position unconstitutional. It also basically declares the Douglasite popular sovereignty view unconstitutional. Although, Douglas is going to try to square the circle and he doesn't do a very good job of it. The only, con- and the, 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 the radical, the idea that the Fifth Amendment somehow had abolished slavery, that's you know, laughable. The only constitutional position is the Calhounite position, according to Tawney. Well, then, it, that, <laughs> that was it, folks. I mean, at that point, the pro-slavery position, which only emerged very gradually, It was not there at the beginning, only emerged very gradually. The, what I take now from what I found, the basic, I I call it a lie, certainly misrepresentation of the Constitution that Tony undertook became, in effect, the law of the land. Hence, the election of 1860 became a, in some ways, a referendum on whether slaves were property according to the Constitution. That was the basis of what the the Republican Party platform was all about. You could not have, you could not limit slavery's expansion in the territories without denying the, 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 the Dred Scott decision, without saying that, in fact, no, the Constitution does not recognize slaves as property. We have the, Congress has the power to keep it out, slavery out of the territories. That's really the issue. So what? And and so Tony, and and so Lincoln has to say, and now it is the law, right? The Supreme Court has spoken. And Lincoln is kind of cagey about this, but he says, look, this has been wrongly decided. And by now, I should add, Madison's notes have been published. And and, And Lincoln in particular, who's a lawyer himself, you know, studies those notes very carefully. And he looks at precisely the things actually that I was looking at. If I, I could have saved myself a lot of time by looking at Abraham Lincoln first. <laughs> that may be a general rule of life, actually. <laughs> um, but, but he didn't have it exactly right. But he had it more right than other people did. And he gives a very important speech at the Cooper Union, then called the Cooper Institute, in February 1860, in which he is basically announcing his candidacy. and uh, or, and, and, he makes, and he refutes. Douglas and Tawny on precisely this point, going back to Madison's notes, quoting exactly that sentence, saying, "This is what we stand for. This is the Republican Party. You have to rally to our flag." And he's talking constitutional politics. It's not abstruse, but it's right at the heart of things. And um, you know, John C. Breckinridge and, and the and 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 the slaveholders are saying, "Not at all. Tawny's right." And then you know. 750,000 lives later, the Civil War is over and slavery is done away with.
1: I, it, it gives me chills to think about Lincoln standing up in, in uh, Cooper Union, quoting Madison, and saying that Dred Scott is a violation of the original understanding of the Constitution. Here are exactly the right. words of the master. Tawny is a bad originalist. <laughs> <laughs> Did yes. Cur- 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 Justices Curtis and McLean uh, filed powerful dissents right. in Dred Scott, noting that free African Americans at the time of the framing did uh, have rights to vote and other civil rights. Did either of them yes. cite Madison's Both notes? Of them. But I don't
2: think I have to go back and check if they cite the notes directly, but um, they make the argument that that Pawnee's point is just not true,
1: and that the framers had meant it. At, at, far from enshrining. I don't want to say it slides.
2: clearly because I know. I, I, yeah. I don't want to say out of speech, because it's specific. Yeah. But. Um, it's very clear, if not in the sense, I think they're in the dissents, but it's very clear to the, to the outside, to the politician, to the political leaders, that that's the stake. I mean, if you read the newspapers at the time, they're very, very clear that it's the Madisonian issue that is dividing people. They say it quite explicitly.
1: And does Lincoln insist that the idea that the Constitution cannot create property and slaves is a central goal of the Civil War, to repudiate?
2: Well, I mean, once you have secession, you have a whole other issue. So people are talking about the legitimacy of secession, and the war of the Union takes precedence over questions of slavery. But by the time, well, very early on in the Civil War, um, the question of slaves as property is, is a big deal.
1: So another reason this is so important, when we talk here at the Constitution Center, we're creating this phenomenal new exhibit, which will open in the spring, uh, the Civil War and Reconstruction the constitutional battle for freedom and equality. And it's gonna be the first gallery in America telling the story of how the promise in the declaration that all men are created equal was betrayed in the Constitution, revived by Lincoln at Gettysburg and finally enshrined in the Constitution itself. But you're, that's not the no, right way I to think, tell uh, it. That's you have too to rewrite simplistic. It. I'm sorry, we have Jeff. to rewrite have the to rewrite script, this is terrible. Well, well, you'll have to Darn. help us. Well, so idea, how would you, yeah. you, you, would, you would say that the original Constitution deliberately excluded uh, the idea that you could create property mm-hmm. in men and that Tawny betrayed that in Dred Scott and Lincoln resurrected the original understanding at Cooper Hewitt, and that was finally enshrined yeah, in yeah. the well, Constitution. Well, it wasn't at, that he, I mean. It's not a sexiest story, but it's well, more
2: accurate. It's <laughs> sexy if you like, you know, the, yeah. Abraham Lincoln. Um, yeah. And James Madison, which we did. And James where, Madison, which and we put those two together. Much. Although, James yeah. Madison is a very complicated figure, and I don't want to give him just undue Kudos, as they say. But um, why don't you take a beat? Because
1: we're talking about it. He, his his views on slavery were, as you say, complicated.
2: Well, he's a slaveholder for yeah. one thing. He owns a lot of slaves at Montpelier. He inherited a lot of slaves. He never gets rid of his slaves. Um, he is a, a man of the Enlightenment, a Virginian of the Enlightenment, and he knows that slavery is a violation of natural rights. So he's carrying these two things around with him, not unlike his friend Thomas Jefferson. Um, at the Constitutional Convention, he wants one thing above all, is to strengthen the federal government and get this constitution ratified. And to do that, he gives a lot to the slaveholders. I mean, it's, Madison is more responsible for the Electoral College, for example, than almost anybody else, and he's doing it precisely because... He wants to make sure that Southerners will be able...
1: Sorry, you can now hiss for the slavery compromise as well as for its current uh, results. This is not Madison at his best,
2: but he's very clear that... He he even says it, because of the Negroes, as he says it, Southerners will never be able to elect a president. So he has an electoral college that's based on the three-fifths clause, which does not give the South a clear majority, but gives them enough close so that five of the first seven presidents are slaveholders. Now, he didn't predict that, but he helped shape that. So, so but, but Madison's not standing up terribly for slavery or against slavery in Philadelphia. He's standing up for the Constitution, and he wants to make sure that it's going to have provisions in there which are going to you know, make sure that it gets support across the country. He did, however, not want the Constitution to enshrine slavery. On um, that, I'm certain, because he was looking to a Constitution that would be for the future. And I think that he hoped to see an America Without slaves, that an America without slavery would eventually come to be. I truly think he believed that. He wasn't going to be able to do it. You know, he was going to throw up his hands. I mean, that's the thing that's so infuriating about these guys. Um, but he did not want to see slavery as an American, in, a constitutional American institution. He truly didn't, and that's that. That explains some of his other, you know, um, um, he's very much, for example, like the other Virginians for banning the, um, the, the abolishing, the, giving Congress the, 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 the authority to, ban, to, to abolish the slave trade. That is the first step towards getting rid of slavery as far as he's concerned. So he's complicated. But you're right about the story and having to rewrite the script. I mean, the idea that, Jeffrey, that, that Lincoln at Gettysburg somehow you know, resurrected something that wasn't, no. I mean, this had been around for a long
1: time. I mean, you tell this amazing story on November 20th, 12 days after Lincoln's victory Hamilton, this is Alexander Hamilton's grandson?
2: It's his son, no, so, his son, Hamilton.
1: James yeah. Alexander Hamilton, his third-born son, runs into a fellow passenger, Charles Cotsworth Pickney, the nephew and namesake of the pro-slavery mainstay, and Hamilton, the son, resurrects Alexander Hamilton's original arguments uh, and tries to persuade the country to adopt them.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's too late. Um, but, but what's interesting about that is here's James Hamilton, He he has this, conference. he's he's, he's coming back from Europe, back to the United States, and he runs into this character, and and he's alarmed. And it's precisely on this question of property. So James Hamilton goes back, arrives in New York, goes back home, and he starts studying the question of property and man. And on July 4th, 1860, the New York Times runs this 6,000-word op-ed piece, in effect, by James Hamilton called Property and Man. And he gets to read Madison, and he spells it all out. But he's not the only one. People on the stump are saying this. Um, John Sherman from Ohio, who is hardly a radical, is saying property and man is not in the Constitution. That is the key to the entire election. That is the key to the Republican Party. We have to fight for it. In Glasgow, Scotland, Frederick Douglass is saying exactly the same thing. We talked about William Lloyd Garrison a moment ago. Garrison is very um, pessimistic about the Constitution. He calls it a covenant with death. He thinks that he believes, like Calhoun, that the Constitution is fundamentally pro-slavery. But Frederick Douglass disagrees. Frederick Douglass sees things much more like Abraham Lincoln will later see them. And he gives a speech in Glasgow, Scotland in 1860. He's run away because of John Brown and a variety of other reasons. But he's in Glasgow. He knows that his words are going to be picked up in America. And he says, no, the Constitution is not pro-slavery. And it's precisely on this question of property and man. And that is the issue before the American people. So go out and vote for He doesn't say who, but we all know who we say.
1: We just did a great podcast with David Blight, who has a monumental new biography of Frederick Douglass, who describes Douglass's evolution from a Garrisonite who thinks it's a pro-slavery document to uh, believing that it is not. But is it actually the Madisonian position that persuades Douglas, and does he read the notes and say- Yeah. That, oh, yeah. And, and like Lincoln, it's the same argument, that, there's, that the framers considered this and refused to- It's not it.
2: just they all read Madison's notes and the scales fell for them from their eyes. There had been various important people who had been making this argument in the- actually before Madison's notes were published, and then really pick up thereafter, the most important being Salmon P. Chase, who later becomes Chief Justice of the Supreme Court under Lincoln. He's the guy who begins um, figuring this out. Um, Before him, Theodore Dwight Weld, a wonderful abolitionist man I greatly admire, um, had figured it out too, even before Madison's notes were published. But he just looked at the Constitution and said, "Wait a minute." But so the argument's bubbling; the argument's out there, and it's it's becoming. It gets advanced by the Liberty Party, by the Free Soil Party, but then the Republican Party really makes it its own.
1: And what is the influence of this argument and this history on the drafting and ratification of the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery?
2: Well, the question was, can you just go ahead and assume that since the the framers had uh, excluded property and man, that you did not have to actually include it in an amendment um, um, abolishing slavery? And the fact was it wasn't the case. Why? Because even though you exclude property and man from national law, it can still exist in state law. And, you know, the states had rebelled and so forth. But there was still the possibility that you end the war, you bring the states back in, and they still had their laws saying that you can have slavery. There were lots of arguments about what the status of the former Confederate states were. But to put it simply, if you were going to take, if you were going to cut the Gordian knot, you had to do it. You had to do it. There were those, in fact, who say that the Thirteenth Amendment shows that slavery was encapsulated in the Constitution. But I think that's wrong. Slavery, look, the Constitution was in part a pro-slavery document, no question. You know, it has a three-fifths clause. It has all those things in there. But it also has has an anti-slavery dimension. They're both present. And they leave it up to Congress to decide which way it's going to go. And for many decades after 1787, Congress goes in a pro-slavery direction. But after 1815 and certainly by 1860, it's taken the same, Instrument the Constitution of the United States and turned it in, in an anti-slavery direction. That's what I think is the heart of all of this, and um, and it's it's not so much that um, Lincoln and Douglas um, they're building on other people's arguments. They kind of go to an extreme. They think that the that the framers were all anti-slavery, eh, not true, but they were more right than they were than their than their adversaries were about what had happened. Um, so it's an extraordinary story. Um, But it's a real story. It's a story, and this is important, I think, to, to, this is sort of one of my takeaway points in all of this. It's important to understand, we think of the United States and the Constitution as having been built on slavery. That's the general orthodoxy these days. We were born as a a nation of slavery. And that's true, but it's only half true. Because there was also an anti-slavery element an anti-slavery politics that was also present there, also present at the creation of the nation. And there was always a fight about slavery. The fight about slavery didn't begin in the 1830s. It began before 1787, but certainly nationally when the nation was being formed. And we have to understand America on that basis. Because if you understand this, as I said to Jeff earlier, if you get this wrong, you've got America wrong. And if you get it right, you're getting closer to getting America right. If we can understand that about the United States, if we understand that the fight over slavery was there from the start, then we can understand the history, I think, of what happened in a much more realistic and comprehensive way. And we can get away from the extremes of of thinking about America either as a wonderful place, which is the old innocent view, or as an evil place, which is an idea that's come up much more recently. It's, it's, It's too simple. It's wrong. They were, as David said in a very nice, David Blake wrote a very nice um, blurb for this book. Slavery and anti-slavery were joined at the hip from the very start, from the very start. And that's the story of America, is the fight over slavery from the very start. And we see it that way, and maybe your exhibit can help, you know, help do that. If you rewrite the script along those lines, I think you'll you'll, uh, not only be pushing my book and my ideas, but no. (laughs) You'll be true to what the framers actually did, and you'll be honoring people who have not been given the honor they're due. Governor Morris, um, Rufus King, uh, William Patterson, William Livingston. These are all anti-slavery delegates to the Constitutional Convention. They have lost in history. They have not received the honor they are due. Not because they won everything. They didn't win everything, but they fought the fight. They fought the fight here, and there were others who fought the fight in Philadelphia and New York, Philadelphia, and then finally in, in Washington, fought the fight as well. They haven't been recognized. These are names you've not heard of. The other unsung heroes in the books. Oh, a man, there's a man named George Thatcher who's from Massachusetts, or actually from Maine, but Maine was then part of Massachusetts, who gets up in Congress and tries to keep slavery from getting into the Mississippi Territory. And he actually gets some support, and this is in the House of Representatives. He loses. But imagine, imagine how American history had been different had, had George Thatcher carried the day. No slavery in Mississippi. <laughs> there were others. James Hillhouse um, from Connecticut did a lot. Actually, the Congress, the Senate did actually come close, the House of Representatives did, but the Senate came close to keeping slavery out of Louisiana territory. Imagine how history would have been different. A man named James Sloane. Uh, I love him because he was a man that Henry Adams looked down upon. So already, I like the guy. <laughs> he, I, he called him a nitwit. Um, he, he's, he's the guy who, who, who comes up with the idea of moving the, the capital back to Philadelphia because it shouldn't have slavery in the national capital. He tries to introduce um, in gradual emancipation in the District of Columbia. He mm-hmm. is a as I said somewhere, it's as if a SNCC organizer had somehow been elected to Congress in 1960. <laughs> this is James Sloan. I mean, he's a white guy from New Jersey, but still. And he's a bit wacky, and it's great, and it's, he's a real character, a real person. But there he is doing all this wacko stuff and actually getting somewhere. James Sloan in 1804 got through the House effectively the, um, um, the, uh, keeping slavery out of Louisiana Territory. The House of Representatives voted to keep, basically to to, to ban any entrance of slaves thereafter into Louisiana territory. The House voted in favor of that. Did any of you know that before you came to this room? I didn't know it until fairly recently. These are part of the struggle. Now, he didn't win in the end, you know, and they found a way to evade it and the Senate didn't approve it. No, it didn't work out. But it didn't work out not because people weren't trying and, in fact, winning at the national political level. So I think it's that history also that I'd like to bring back into, you know, into circulation because it's been utterly forgotten. And these men and the women that were on, they were part of the movement as well. um, And free blacks and slaves were all part of this effort. This all has to be recognized or else we're never going to understand how this, this country grappled with an institution that was very fundamental to its existence, but the reaction against it was also fundamental to its existence.
1: What is so powerful and so transformative about this book is that you answer the question posed by Thurgood Marshall at the beginning of the book, namely, how could a pro-slavery constitution become an instrument for anti-slavery politics? And your answer is by refusing to constitutionalize the question, by leaving it up to politics. Correct. How then, after the passage of the 13th Amendment, and especially more recently, Was this history forgotten, and has it become conventional wisdom once again among historians that the Constitution was a pro-slavery document?
2: Right. um, For the first generation after the Civil War, actually, people were very aware of all of this. I mean, um, when Horace Greeley or Henry Wilson writes his history of the rise and fall of the slave power, um, this argument is very front and center. But then through the era of, you know, redemption, the end of Reconstruction, the whole history of slavery in the Constitution falls away. Um, I mean, when Charles Beard writes his great history of the United States and he talks about the formation of the, Constitu- the economic inter- interpretation of the Constitution of the United States, slavery is not there. It's just ignored. Slavery drops out of the, the history of the Constitution, much as it drops out of a lot of American history, frankly, the way it was taught, the way it was read, the way it was written about. Um, Southerners kind of take over the American historical profession. Um, so the whole slavery issue was just forgotten for decades and decades and decades. Uh, but then it comes back in the 1950s and the 1960s as the great revolution in American historical uh, scholarship and legal scholarship as well. And Marshall had a lot to do with this. Um, um, put slavery back at the center of things. But then I think historians grapped on to the most radical view about slavery in the Constitution, which was that the, the Constitution was wholly pro-slavery. And that became a view in the 1970s and 80s And it remains the the dominant view, I think, in history departments and in law schools around the country. And you know, look, that was a it was good that that view superseded the older view. I mean, yes, slavery was important to the Constitutional Convention and to the Constitution. The slaveholders did have great sway. Um, This is important to recognize. But in doing so, I think in in adopting the, the Garrisonian view as opposed to the Douglas and Lincolnian view, which they kind of you know. Poo poo away, they made a mistake. They got it wrong. Or rather, they got it partly wrong. I mean, I've said at the beginning here um, the view of the, pro- the, view of the, of, of the currently uh, prevailing view it's not that it's wrong, but it re- it's going to require an amendment. <laughs> you know, it's going to require an amendment. And the amendment is precisely to understand the question of property and man and the anti slavery dimensions that were eventually going to make it possible for people like Lincoln and Douglas to come along.
1: All right. We have some magnificent questions, as always, from our great audience. Here are two that will uh, go together. Did Southern delegates argue to have the word "slavery" in the Constitution, and how did they justify counting them as three-fifths without giving them at least three-fifths of the vote, or was that not considered as making any sense logically?
2: Well, the second question is easy. Um, no, they didn't. Th- it, it never came up. Um, the idea of slaves as citizens, uh, voting citizens, was you know not on the cards. Certainly, the the, the um, uh, the, 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 the Federal Convention wasn't going to decide that. The reason had to do with a, pre, a presumption among the framers that wealth ought to be counted as part of apportionment. And these are not 19th, let alone 20th, let alone 21st century Democrats that are assembled here in Philadelphia. They believe that wealth should have a say. Now, what do you do about wealth and slaves? You can't recognize slaves as property, the Free first Clause doesn't, want, doesn't do that, but you have to at least give, in Southern law, slaves are property. That's a large part of southern wealth. How are you going to be able to account for that wealth if you don't count the slaves as part of the population? Once the the framers decide that population will be be the basis of representation rather than wealth itself. So it had more had to do with that. But slaves were a, it it was never an idea that you were going to give slaves the vote. There was never an idea that you're going to allow slaves within the pale of citizenship of one form or another, even if humanity in some ways, a form of social death, as L. A. L. A. L. A. Orlando Patterson has put it. But it was a, an add-on. It was a formula to try to recognize the southerners' wealth as, as, as part of why that should be represented. Without the three-fifths clause, the, the, the lower south in particular, and remember Virginia is kind of on the... On the, on the fence about a lot of these issues. The Lower South would have been an isolated minority for a very long time. I mean, they just didn't have the people, South Carolina, Georgia. There's 80,000 people in Georgia, something like that. in 70. Nobody is there. They would have been, an, but with the Three-Fifths Clause, they have a fighting chance. And they you know, use that fighting chance all the way to the 1850s and do very well with it. So that's <coughs> the part about the Three-Fifths Clause. Now I've forgotten the first question. The first was, did Southern delegates argue to have the word Ah, slavery in the Constitution? That's interesting. Um, At certain points, it comes up. Um, George Mason, a Virginian, um, says he'd be perfectly happy to have the word slavery in the Constitution. But from the beginning, I think the Southerners are wary of trying to do that, and it doesn't really come up. And they know, they're aware um, that if they do that, that the Northerners will explode. So they, they, very, they, they, they just don't press the issue. Except in that one instance that I cited about Charles Coates with Pinckney, where in order to get the privileges and immunities clause that he wants, he appears to want to enshrine property and man in the Constitution, which is to say slavery. And that's the one instance where I found that, that they actually try to push for that. Um, at one point in the, when I was doing this research, I kind of thought that they were the Southerners were pushing for it in a very you know stealth like way um, I'm less convinced of that now, but I do think that they were perfectly happy to they would have been perfectly happy to allow slave uh, slavery to be in the constitution. They would have been overjoyed um, and I think they would not have been disappointed if the the, the by subterfuge with the wording that the implication would have been left that slaves were property. They would have been very happy with that as well. But they don't object too much when, they, when, the, when, the, when, the, when the majority of the, con- of the convention actually eliminates those ambiguities, in part because they can see the one time when it came up, they get crushed. You know, It's just not going to happen. The convention majority will not let this happen, and the South knows it. The South does other things though, <laughs> it gets the three-fifths clause, it gets the extension to the, um, you know, the, the, the stay of execution for the slave trade, um, it gets the fugitive slave clause. These are things that they think will do, will make it much harder for the federal government to ever do anything about slavery or the slave trade. Um, so they, they put their, that's where they put their money. is in in trying to create a political system as well as a framework of law that will allow them to hold on to their slaves and will will, will make it almost impossible for the federal government to do anything.
1: Uh, All right, two more uh, questions. Um, Was any thought given by the constitutional delegates to voting to abolish slavery and therefore create a smaller USA without the pro-slavery states?
2: No. (laughs) No. I mean, look, if you were going to have um, um, a, a nation that included South Carolina and Georgia and Virginia and North Carolina, you were not going to abolish slavery. It was not going to happen. Now, they did think that many of them, including many of the Virginians, thought that slavery was on its way out anyway. And that was for economic reasons and for moral reasons. They thought that in time, slavery's days were numbered. This is before the cotton gin. It's all gonna change when the cotton gin comes in and you're gonna have a cotton empire unlike anything the world had ever seen. But at this point, it's based on tobacco and <clears throat> the tobacco market is glutted. There are only so many pipes in Europe. Um, you know, it's just not gonna, so they think that slavery's on its way out. Jefferson says this all the time. You know, that, that finally morality is catching up with expediency or the other way around. Um, so, so the, the framers, were not about to abolish slavery. They were not going to interfere with the property laws of existing states. They just weren't going to. But neither were they going to say that, that slavery was a national institution, thereby abrogating the laws of the northern states, which had changed about all of this. So the, the question of abolition did not come up. Now, there were northerners who said, northern anti-slavery you know radicals who said, this is a terrible constitution. We've given too much to the slaveholders. We should let them go. We don't want to have anything to do with them should form a northern, you know, a northern um, um, America and let the South go. We're not going to have our consciences. Now, there weren't that many of those people, but they were there, a bit like the Garrisonians in the 1830s, 40s, right to the secession crisis. But think of what that would have meant. First of all, in 1787, 88, New Jersey and New York were still slave states, when New Jersey New York been included in this Northern Confederation, or would they have gone with the South? Hard to say. So, so the, it, it just wasn't realistic. Then think about, in fact, if New York and New Jersey had decided, okay, we're getting all our slaves, we're going to do this, form this Northern. Co-, how would that have been good for the slaves? Not very. Because the South could have could have consolidated its own nation. It wasn't. You know, it it, it wasn't going to do anything to to, to ameliorate the condition of the slaves, if they had done that. It wasn't in the cards anyway, though. It just wasn't in the cards. What they did think, though, was that they could establish a powerful nation that would leave it up to the politics of the the nation, to popular sovereignty, to the popular will, to, to solve this problem of slavery. And that's what they did. And, and, and this, this might sound a little odd, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I always say odd things at the Constitution Center, so I might as no, well say my odd thing now. True things. For millennia, as I said before, slavery had been considered a perfectly natural institution. Suddenly, in the middle of the 18th century, that doesn't happen. I mean, for, among white people, slaves never thought that slavery was okay. But for, for non-slave, there was this great moral. Now, in the, in, the, in, the, in the arc of time, 70 years is not that long. 70 years is not that long. And America, the United States, goes from being a true slave holding nation in 1776, all 13 colonies were slave colonies, to abolishing slavery in 80 years. Given where the whole history of slavery, I think that's pretty quick. Americans, we have a very short history. We think of 80 years as a long time, but in 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 the grand scheme of history, America did an extraordinary thing. Now, that's not to say that America was a completely extraordinary place, because it also gave rise to one of the greatest slave empires in the history of the world that very easily could have won that war. So, you know, there's an ambiguity there. But as history transpired, Especially given the fact that slavery was on the upswing in the 1850s. Slavery was doing fine. There was no natural reason to get rid of slavery if we were just looking at the economics of the country. And yet, we had a war over it and we got rid of it. That to me, as I say, in the, in the long sweep of time, you know, the Chinese have a very famous, there's a very famous story where someone said to Chiang Kai-shek or something. What do you think about the French Revolution? To which she said, it's much too early to tell. (laughs) That's the longer view of history. I think a longer view of history makes this look much less, I mean, it was torturous, it was terrible, many hundreds of thousands, nearly a million people had died. And yet, and yet, fairly quickly, in the larger scheme of things, slavery was undone. And, and it wasn't just done by the Americans, and the French are part of it, and the British are part of it, and, it's, and the, above all, the slaves and the free blacks are, are pushing this revolution. But this revolution won. It took longer than the American Revolution to win, but in some ways slavery was a much more, in some ways, an even more obdurate institution than monarchy.
1: Well, maybe that observation uh, answers this very powerful last uh, question, which is an opportunity for your closing thoughts. Isn't uh, it true that politics failed to resolve the issue of slavery? Therefore, despite your argument about the language, the original uh, f- factor of the Constitution was the critical unredeemable factor, or I guess I'd ask, do you believe as you just argued that the decision to leave the ultimate issue of slavery to politics did lead to its abolition more quickly than it might There's otherwise have done? There's a very important
2: point in that question, and I want to uh, make, make, make it clear. The Constitution did construct a political system which was gonna allow the slaveholders to pull the Constitution in a pro-slavery direction for a very long time. The Three-Fifths Clause helped do that. Not the slave trade business, not the fugitive slave thing so much, but the Southerners were able to take advantage of their power to really get to the point where they actually controlled the federal government. And after the Cotton Revolution, and by the 1830s and 1840s, what Northern anti-slavery people called the slave power, which had control of, every branch of government, at the federal level, every branch of the federal government, and all the southern state governments, obviously, that was real, and that was perfectly constitutional. So the Constitution, the framers set up a political system that was going to allow slaveholders to rule the day. It cre- the slave power was perfectly constitutional, and this is something we have to understand in the Constitution. The Constitution can come very, very close to legitimizing tyranny, and that's something we ought to think about today as well as then. You can have a legitimate tyranny under the, under the Constitution of the United States for all of its glory. However, the politics could also go in the other direction, and really that's my point, because ultimately the system that the Constitution opened up gave just enough room for the politics to move in the other direction. For politics to move in the other direction precisely when slavery was reaching its apogee, its its zenith of power, along came all of these brave men and women who were going to fight slavery and form a political movement to end it. And they found room in the political movement, in American politics to do that. I mean, the more I think about it, the, the, the politics working themselves out, the Republican Party of the 1850s is one of the most extraordinary institutions in, in world history. It's the first mass organization of its kind in politics that was anti-slavery, never happened before. I mean, the Pennsylvania Abolition Society was great, but it wasn't the Republican Party that was gonna elect a president. The Constitution made those politics possible. So I think when we see the, the, the political outcome of 1787, we have to bear, you know, have two things in mind at the same time. That it could have left a politics that could lead in very, very powerful pro-slavery directions, but it also had the possibility for, left open the possibility for undoing it. And, you know, by the grace of whatever, um, you know, the anti-slavery side won. Um, Although even there, as we see, those victories are never permanent. Um, nothing in history is permanent, um, and the possibilities of tyranny in the Constitution are still very much there. Um, I don't think we're going to get slavery back anytime time soon, um, but the legacy of the Civil War is still very much with us. So I don't want to make the Constitution, you know, I don't want to be bright and shiny about the Constitution. It's a great thing. It was just great enough, and that's the importance of, this, of this, what I write in this book, I think. It, it was just enough open up the possibilities for abolition, for the end of, of slavery. And the framers have to be criticized and, and understood for all that they did to move in one direction, although under the duress of necessity, they weren't doing it because they loved slavery, they do it because they wanted to have a nation and the nation took precedence over all of that. But they made sure that their progeny, us, would not be bound to slavery, that we could undo it. So if slavery gives us the room for tyranny, it also gives the room for anti-tyranny. And that's the Constitution we've got, and that's why we have to continually fight for it. That's a presentist conclusion. But I think that in terms of the question, I think that you have to see the the, the Constitution as both with regards to slavery. And it was both not by accident but by design. And that's the I call it a paradox. It's a paradox that turned into a contradiction. A paradox is something that, you know, is just an irony. A contradiction cannot last. A contradiction is unstable. This looked like a paradox because it looked like eventually slavery would disappear. When slavery would not disappear, it became a contradiction. And they could not, they could not hold together. These two constitutional possibilities could not hold together. Why? Because you had two property regimes that had emerged. One thought that property in man was a violation of natural rights. The other enshrined property of man as the cornerstone of their society. You could not have those two regimes under one constitution. And eventually, you know, the the under constitutional means, the anti-slavery society won the politics. And so the solution, the, the slaveholders had no choice but to secede and to form the constitution of their own, having fought for 70 years under the illusion that the constitution was what they said it was, that it, you know, that it, that it enshrined property in man, they had to find a constitution of their own which did enshrine com- property in man, thereby contradicting what they'd done for 70 years but getting what they wanted. But Abraham Lincoln, as Abraham Lincoln said, um, treason or secession is treason and treason is war, and that's what happened.
1: Sean Wilentz, for transforming our understanding of American history by teaching us that every constitutional question is ultimately resolved through politics, but that every political transformation is ultimately fought in constitutional terms, you have all of our sincere thanks. Thank you. Thank you you very much. Thank Thank you all.
0: This episode was edited by Greg Scheckler and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber.